Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. All right, welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield, and today's guest, Matt Rogers, is not only a friend of mine from years past, but is somebody that I think is going to add a ton of value to you guys today. Uh, Matt originally hails from Arcadia, California, so he's a surf boy, not really, um, but you'll find out a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, now living in the great state of Tennessee, Matt is a TV show personality, and, and some of you might recognize the name from years past. He was a season three finalist on Fox's uh, reality singing competition, American Idol. Um, he's since gone on to host lots of television shows, Discovery Channel's Gold Rush, The Dirt, Deadliest Catch, The Bait. He's been singing and cooking and making people laugh on Hallmark Channel's daily talk show, Home and Family. And probably one of my favorite things that Matt has had the opportunity to do is he hosts the Coming Home, a reality docuseries on Lifetime Channel, which uh, it follows those surprise reunions of military family members and their loved ones. So a little flavor of Matt. Uh, Matt's a, a small business ownership guru. He's a consultant. He helps small businesses a lot in uh, one of his other jobs. He wears about 17 hats. But what I can tell you about Matt is Super positive guy with a lot of value, an amazing speaker, fantastic entertainer, uh, who's had his share of change to overcome in his life as well. And I, I'm just happy to have you, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the uh, the intro too, man. It's good to talk to you, Jeff. You're quite welcome. We're, the group's going to love this, I'm sure, today. So, so here's where I thought we might begin. So, you you uh, you can't you you hail from Arcadia, California, where you were this. Uh, you were a small child, right? You were never a big guy who wasn't destined to play football. T- tell us a little bit about your. Uh, <laughs> were you? Were you? Matt, just so that the audience knows, Matt went on to play college football. Uh, he didn't play at Ohio State. He wasn't quite that good, but he did play at Division. <laughs> giving him a hard time there. Uh, he did play Division One college football. Did you always know, Matt, growing up, that you were going to be a big, tough dude and play some football when you got older? No, I was the opposite. But for the record, I did win a Rose Bowl and beat Purdue when Drew Brees was the quarterback who slaughtered Ohio State that year. So <laughs> technically, I beat Ohio State. I see how that works in your six degrees of football, Kevin Bacon. Whatever it takes. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Uh, no, but I was always the short, fat, slow, white kid. Uh, I was the baby of five, followed my mom around everywhere, and I was pretty much a mama's boy. No joke about as soft as they come. I remember my freshman year, I played football in high school just because all my friends were doing it. And true story, uh, I would fake injuries so I didn't have to practice because I didn't want to get hit. I was that soft. But long story short, quit my sophomore year because, again, I was soft, slow, fat, and white. And then uh, at that time, when you didn't play a sport, you were in P.E., And the varsity football coach happened to be a substitute teacher that week. He saw me. I was big. And he said, why don't you come play football for me? I said, no, I tried that. It didn't work out. And I didn't have a lot of confidence. But he was the one guy that said, hey, come play for me. I promise you things will be different. So I I bought into him. And I trusted him, and it changed my life. He he made me a better man and obviously a better football player. That's awesome. 
Uh, well, well, tell. So you ended up playing in two different schools, right? Yeah. First, I got a, a scholarship to the University of Iowa. Played under Hayden Fry. And then when Hayden Fry retired, I was at home. We had went three and eight that year. We did not make a bowl game. And I'll never forget. I was watching ESPN uh, ESPN on Christmas, and it was right uh, in 1998 when they started scrolling the news at the bottom of the ESPN feed. Of course, when ESPN came out, they didn't do that. And I'll never forget. They first started doing that. And the bottom it said. Iowa head football coach Hayden Fry retires. And I'm like, holy crap, I didn't know that. So I come. So anyway, I go end up going back to Iowa, and Kurt Ferentz ends up being the head football coach who's there now. And he didn't want old guys that had two years left on a scholarship but only one year to offer. So I got really fortunate. I called uh, my uh, uh, my coach from back in the day and I said, Hey, this guy's no good for me. He's running out the old guys. And I'm in trouble. And they, uh, I got a couple different offers and the University of Washington was one of them. So I only had two years left on my scholarship, but I only had one year left to play because I had started three years in a row. But I needed, you know, five years to get my degree because let's just say I was more interested in playing football than doing that. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so I was very blessed to get a two-year scholarship to the University of Washington. I redshirted my fourth-year senior and then started as a fifth-year senior, went 11-1 and one and won a Rose Bowl there. And that was awesome. That's really cool. So tell me a little bit. We'll backtrack now a little bit now because we know that you, know, you, had, you had this prominent football career. We'll get to your music career after that because you're a multi, multi-faceted, multi-talented dude. Uh, but I want to backtrack for a second because I, I vaguely remember – uh, when I first met you, one of the things that struck me the most about you was um, the impact that your mama had on you yeah. and, and growing up and, and just how she really prepared you in, in a lot of ways to become the man that you are today and to overcome a lot of the change you've had to overcome. Tell us a little bit about your mama. Yeah. Well, I mean, two things that you bring up my mom, which is near and dear to my heart. The second thing is, you know, this whole thing is about change and learning to embrace change actually came from my mom. So it's funny that we're talking about those two things, but just to give you a quick background, like I said, I was the baby of five, super close to my mom. Uh, I followed her around everywhere. She was actually the one, uh, I always say that she, uh, she was like the spiritual backbone of our family. You know, growing up an 80s baby, my mom had, you know, big, tall hair and big old glasses. And she would always say, you know, Matthew, the higher the hair, the closer to Jesus, baby. <laughs> so, so I followed her around and um, that's kind of how I got my heart for people. She served a lot of homeless people, served in the church and uh, just got kind of, I would say, my heart from her. And, and one thing that she said that always stuck with me is she said, Matthew, don't ever get too high on the highs and don't ever get too low on the lows. And then the spiritual side of her would always you know, say, remember who you are, whose you are and where you're going. And, you know, by that, I mean, you know, remember who you are, you're, you know, you're you, Matthew Rogers, whose you are, which is the Lord. And remember where you're going, uh, which, uh, you know, it was always towards destiny and it was always towards purpose. And she was, you know, now the word life coach and mentor is such a cliche and, you know, in a lot of ways a played out, you know, term. But back in 1982, there were no life coaches, there were no mentors. And, and she was my original one because she was the one who, uh, who showed me that change is actually good. Right. And that, uh, you know, she told me at a young age, the most successful people in the world will always embrace change. And ones who aren't successful will be afraid of it and try to avoid it. Mm. 
And at four, five, six years old, I didn't know what the heck she was talking about. But now here I am, right. 41 years old, and I'm still going by the principles of what she told me. It's pretty cool. That's that's awesome. So at what point did you figure out that you could sing, boy? That you you had a you had a singing voice, as they say in the South. Yeah, I mean it's funny. I my my thing was never to sing. I always like to make people laugh. I remember back in the day when we'd have cassette recorders, I would always make Saturday Night Live skits on my little cassette recorder because I always like to make people laugh, and that was my favorite show back in the day. Um, but I would always go into the church plays and the school plays. I wasn't a drama guy, but I just love to perform and make people laugh. And, uh, you know, in, in football, uh, I was always the one singing in the shower. Like I don't have any professional music training. I cannot play an instrument and I can't read a lick of freaking music. Right. I like to sing and have fun. Like, you know, when I leave you voicemails, it's not, I'm never talking. <laughs> I'm usually singing you a song. I'll just make up stupid stuff, but uh, that's kind of how it happened. And, you know, I'm, I'm America's favorite karaoke friend. <laughs> so, so, so when did, uh, cause you lived in California. So, so who, t- t- I don't know that, that I even know the full backstory to how you ended up on American Idol. What's that? What was that journey like? So you'll like this. I actually played for the Cincinnati Bengals for one day. Nice. And then, uh, when I got cut by the Bengals, I went back home, uh, got a normal job. I was, long story short, I was in the mortgage business. And, uh, you know, I, I love sales. And we were at a top five dinner for the top five sales guys in the company. It was this real nice dinner in San Diego, California. And, you know, it was the first time we got to get with the big boss. And, uh, you know, rumor around the table was that Rogers can sing opera. And, you know, he was drinking a little bit. And after he threw a couple more back, he's like, Rogers, I'll give you 500 bucks if you stand up in front of this nice restaurant and sing opera. And I'm like, dude, do it. Put the money down. So he puts the money on the table. I stand up. And this is one of those restaurants where there's a piano player, the waiters, you know, deliver your food in the big silver tin with the white towel on their arm. And it's a very classy restaurant. So I stand up in front of the whole restaurant and just start bolting it out. Like, Riva Risol! And I start singing. And like, everyone stops. The cooks are looking over the kitchen counter. The piano player stops. And then I, at the very end, I hit the high notes. Like, oh! And one clap turns to three. And the whole place stands up and starts cheering. And this guy comes over to me. He goes, hello, mate. My name's Nigel Lithgow. I have a little show called American Idol. And you should come try out. It's next week. And I said, all right, man, I'll be there. And that's kind of how I got on Idol. Wow. So what are the odds that Nigel would be there? You know, Nigel would be there in the audience. That's uh, that's pretty cool. You never know what life has in store for you. Now, now here's a question before I ask any more about American Idol. Because just so the audience knows that today, now you're married to a beautiful wife, Terry, and you've got three kids, Braden, who's 13, your oldest, Mason's your middle at 11, and Samantha, who we'll get to in a little bit, is five. Uh, when you're out in public and, and, and do you start to, how do your kids take to Papa Bear belting out opera or do they like, dude, d- dad, you can't do that to us? Like, oh. where, how, how does that work for you? Well, the 13 and the 11 year old are pretty much too cool for school. So I'm not as funny to them. And it's not. That you used to be. (laughs) I used to be. My daughter is exactly like, she'll let me do anything, sing anything. In fact, she'll encourage me. Uh, We can talk about that if you want to, but her and I were actually on Ellen together because she had a viral video that went. Yeah, we'll get to that. We're going to get to that. Yeah. Yeah, She, uh, 
she loves it. But uh, my 13-year-old and 11-year-old, they are uh, at that age to where it's like, shut up, dad. You're embarrassing me. <laughs> well, I ask you that question because, you know, I have a 19-year-old and the audience, some of them know, is my oldest daughter. And then my son is 14. And um, our, our little Indian princess, Priya, who we adopted from India when she was two. And, and she's, she's all in for anything I want to do. My oldest daughter is all in for anything I want to do. My son in the middle, he's not. And this past year, we were in Vegas for vacation, and we were at the Venetian. And if you've ever been to the Venetian, they've got the gondola rides that go through the, the hotel. And they've got the Italian singers, right, the, 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 the gondola uh, Sherpas, if you will, the captains. And they just float you around and sing. And I decided that I was going to test it out on my to see if my son had gotten any less embarrassed. And so we're floating through the Venetian, and, and and all of a sudden, right when the our guy had stopped for a period of time, and it's you know it's a big echo chamber in there, I just started belting out. Yeah, I just yeah, when the moon hits you, and I just went for it. And oh my gosh, I thought my son was going to jump overboard into the water. So, anyways, I think that's good for him, right? It builds character. One day they'll look back and they'll say, "Yeah, my dad was an idiot, but that's why I loved him." That's what we hope, right? <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I remember in my teen years, my mom bugged the crap out of me, and she embarrassed me, and she was always outgoing, and I. And now I look back and I kind of became like her. So that'll probably happen to my my kids and your kids as well. Absolutely. So, all right. So tell me a little bit about, um, just give me the, give us the short story on American Idol, the pressure that you felt. Did you feel any pressure at all as it got further and further into the seasons? You made it pretty far along into that. Was that a, was that a really, really great process that you went through or looking back on it, you're like, yeah, you know what, that was... It was kind of a, of a of one of those cases where it was probably more effort than it was worth. What, what was that like? I mean, there's pros and cons with everything. I would say the, the, the good thing was because of football, because of traveling, and, and to be honest, because of just being a college football player and going out and going to parties and being in the social scene, when I got to the idle stage, it wasn't that big of a change for me because I was with kids who were 16, 17, 18 years old. It's, it's the first time Sally's ever been on a plane out of Alabama. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> oh my God, there's just so many houses in California. I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? So like I had been kind of around in terms of traveling and being a part of that. So that helped me a lot. The, the challenge was to answer your question. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in terms of pressure because in football, if I screwed up, I had 10 people that had my back. If I screwed up on this, it was all on me. And I remember uh, the anxiety that I would feel uh, before I hit the stage, working, me memorizing lines, writing songs, working on my arrangement. Because again, I was with Fantasia, Jennifer Hudson, you know, George Huff, I mean, Diana DeGarmo, people who were have a God-given talent and born to sing. Like Jennifer Hudson's one of the greatest singers on the yeah. planet right now. And I knew I wasn't as good as her. So what I had to do to compete with her was I had to outwork her. I had to do what I could do because I wasn't going to outsing her. Uh, right. And that was the hard part for me was feeling that type of pressure. But the cool thing was so many people fell to the wayside that couldn't handle the pressure. And because of football and because of, you know, just the type of people that, you know, we are and can handle pressure, I went way further than probably my talent would have allowed me because uh, I'm not the most talented person. And I'll tell you right now, that year, I think 120,000 people tried out and I finished as one of the finalists. I can tell you 75,000 of those people that didn't make it 
are way better than me. <laughs> they just are. Uh, it's just, it's just genetics. It's God given talent, whatever it is. But the mindset that they didn't have and the mindset that I learned through sports and just through life was the reason why I got so far. Yeah. Boy, amen to that, right? I mean, that's a, that's a case where talent can only take you so far no matter what it is. It doesn't matter whether it's sports, whether it's music, whether it's running a business. Uh, you got some natural gifts and some natural God-given talent, but you know the hard work of the perseverance. And the thing I wanted to ask you about was it's overcoming that our, our self-preservation biology of fear of failure because so many people will shut down when they get up against that, that ultimate fear of failure, right? They'll push them up and they'll say, you know what? I don't want to. I don't want to work that hard because if I fail, then everyone's going to be looking at me, and then I'm going to feel like this big giant failure. But the greatest people in the world that have achieved the most success for themselves, and and really more importantly for other people, find that extra gear that right in the face of that, it's easier to crawl back into my safety box. They push out instead and embrace that, and know that the fear is going to make them uh, feel uneasy and uncomfortable. But on the other side of that fear is potential purpose. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Um, well, I've just, I've, I've gone through so many things. I mean, if, if you want to get into it, I can, but there, there's so many things that I've, I've literally faced my greatest fears in life, whether it be sickness, death, you know, getting a job, not getting a job, getting picked on a show, not getting picked on a show, winning a game, losing a game. So, I mean, I've faced a lot of my greatest fears in life. And the thing is I've lost, more than I've won. Uh, in Hollywood, you know, you listed all my TV accolades in the beginning. Yeah, I've hosted a lot of shows. Like in in total, if, off the top of my head, I want to say about 15 different shows in, in 10 years. But the truth is, I got told no probably about 1,500 times, <laughs> which means I only got told yes 15 of those times. But those yeses, uh, you know, make you wealthy and make you successful and overcome your courage. So the thing is, when you talk about failure, when you talk about, you know, fear and courage, it's what I've seen is um, to overcome for me personally, courage comes to those who act, not to those who think and wait and see how things play out. Uh, the faster you can take action and, uh, and face things head on, that's when you're really going to find out what you're made of. And, and I always think, you know, fear is something you feel. And 95% of the things that we fear the most actually never happen to us. Right. Uh, you know, if, if I gave into every single fear I had when I had a headache, I would have died of a brain tumor 15 times over already. You know what I mean? Right, right. You yeah. know, we get a headache on the left side of our head. It's like, oh my God. And we Google it and, you know, we basically are going to die in two weeks. Um, and that's with anything in life, not just that. So what I've found is I've never been the best. I've never been the fastest. I've never been the smartest. I sure as hell I'm not the best singer, but I take action and I move forward while everybody else analyzes and thinks about it and wonders if it's going to work out or not. Yeah. And I think that, that that's, that's half the battle in life, isn't it? With anything. And I, I've heard it said that, you know, courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is the, the ability to move forward in the face of it. Yep. And, and knowing that, Hey, I might fail. And you know, a lot of our, audience listeners, they know that, you know, I started Brain Trust 10 years ago 
And it was the dumbest thing that on, on the surface you could have possibly thought to do. At the crash of 2008, you're going to start a business? Right. Why on earth would you leave a cushy Fortune 500 job, six-figure executive salary, and start your own business? Well, one, because I'm crazy stupid. Um, but, but two, I have crazy faith. And I think that I think sometimes stupidity and faith, and so for some of us, go hand in hand. Uh, but I, I love that story because it, hopefully it encourages people out there that are listening to think that, you know what, maybe they're being called to do something, to step out, to do something and, and, and start their own business or to reach out and do that extra something where they didn't think they had the ability. And so many people, uh, they go through life with their brakes on. And it's almost like they're driving down the highway with it t- toward their purpose with their emergency brake on, and they never make it far enough down the highway to actually make an impact because they're afraid. And so that, I love that 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 concept that you're bringing to the table to the audience there. So what I also want to talk about a little bit about is as you've transitioned from wearing multiple hats, from being an entertainer, being a television host, being a small business owner yourself in a lot of ways, um, you and your family... Uh, your family's been there with you through this all, and Terry and the kids. And you moved, you moved, you you, you had you made a big choice. You made a big choice about four years ago to uproot your family from California and make a move all the way across the country to Tennessee. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Um, scary, exciting, and um, the right move. I uh, when I'm going to make, you know, I read somewhere that the three biggest stressful times in a person's life is when they experience death of some sort, the family, a loved one dies, when they make a career change or when they move, uh, uh, when they are moving, when they move houses, you know, make a residence. Right. Uh, and unfortunately I went through three of those at the same time, but to, to answer your question, I was born and raised in California. I was always proud to be a California kid. Growing up in California in the 80s was the best childhood, funnest childhood I could have ever thought of in my life. It was awesome. When I played football in the 90s and left home and then came back in the early 2000s, the truth is, and I apologize to all the Californians out there that are listening, but when I came back in the early, mid-2000s, I was like, this is not the California I grew up in. Uh, It was not cool to me anymore. I didn't like the politics that were going on there. I didn't like the way that the money was managed in California. I didn't like the overpricing, the overpopulation, the gas price. I didn't like anything about it. I didn't like how community started to lose its feeling. I didn't like how my kids couldn't go outside and and play like I used to and come home when the streetlights came on. I just, there was a lot of things I didn't like about California anymore. And when I was filming a show in the South, I had never been there before. And I said, holy smokes, this is what I remember my childhood to where, uh, you know, not saying that California doesn't. So please, you know, hear me for you, those of you out there that think I'm ripping on California. I'm not. Uh, but when I came to the South, it reminded me of, of California 30 years ago. Uh, it's just a different vibe. People are different. The traffic's different. The housing prices are different. And for me as a man, I didn't feel like I was building anything and planting any roots in California. So when I make a big decision like that, uh, I definitely pray about it because faith is really, really important to me. And, um, you know, a lot of people would trip out when they say, oh, well, God spoke to me or I feel like God's saying this. And I know that that's played out a lot. But for me, uh, I know when the Lord speaks to me and I know when he tells me to move and when he tells me to stay still. And for me, uh, 
that was something that I felt released from, that I could leave California and everything was going to be okay. I wasn't afraid to leave California and make a mistake. I was more afraid to stay in California and make a mistake. Hmm. And I told my wife, I said, the thought of moving across the country and failing and coming back and saying, hey, we took a shot, we failed. This didn't work out, that didn't work out. That didn't scare me as much as waking up in California 10 years from now thinking, crap, I wish we would have took the shot. Yeah. And for us, the timing was right. Uh, my oldest was nine, my middle was seven, and then baby Sam was one and a half. So timing-wise for our kids was good because we didn't want them to get so enthralled in school and sports and high school and then say, hey, we're leaving. Uh, and, but for us, the timing was perfect. Uh, the need was there and, and we left and we left our family. I left my job, my work, uh, television, my payroll company. I mean, we literally moved here with nothing and that excited me. <laughs> wow. You just terrified about 90% of the audience listening. The very thought of doing that just terrified so many people, yet you embraced it. And obviously it's paid off for you at this point. And I think that that... We we only we're only here for a whisper, right? We're we're a vapor in the wind, as the good book says. And I think sometimes people get so paralyzed with the fear of something not working out, uh, and wishing when you when you hear the 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 hundred year old club get interviewed every year, and they ask them what wisdom they could pass down to the younger generation. What do so many of them say? They wish they would have taken more chances. Yep. You know, it's one of the. It's always in the top three. Yeah, I, I wish I would have loved more. I wish I would have spent more time with family, and I wish I would have taken more chances. That's almost all, all of them say those things. And you were able to to do all those things, right, by moving your family to Tennessee. That's awesome. Well, tell um, – I was just going to say, I was – like I said, and I can't drive this home enough, is I was more afraid to stay in the same place and just be okay than go and take a shot and, and wonder what it would have been like if we would have did it. You know, I'd rather totally. take a shot, screw it up, know that I screwed it up, come back and, you know, I'll be okay. I was only, you know, 38 at the time. I'm 41 now. And, you know, then, you know, coming here and it worked out. It's the best move I ever made. My only regret is that I didn't do it 10 years earlier. Isn't that funny? And, and I always tell folks, they ask me about that with my company. I say, well, I wish I would have started it early, but then the reality is, is I wasn't ready to earlier and, right. and God wasn't ready to release it to me earlier. So it probably wouldn't have worked. Absolutely. So one of the other pieces I want to get into a little bit, I think might resonate with a lot of folks is um, you have two of your children, Mason and Samantha, or, Mason, or Sam, uh, both were diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. Right. Um, Tell, tell the audience about, because so many of us have situations in our families where we have something like that happen. What was it like when you and Terry found out that Mason has cystic fibrosis? Um, t- take us back to that moment of, of, of when it was shared with you that that was the case and then what you guys determined to do about it. Sure. So we had always wanted, uh, we had always wanted three or four kids. And we had our first son and you know what it's like. You're in your mid twenties. You have your first baby, you buy your first house. Everything's perfect. We had another kid. Uh, Mason was born. And when, really? (laughs) Sorry, he just walked in. (laughs) That was Mason? Yeah. Mooch, come here. (laughs) Look at this. This is real time authenticity. Seriously. You heard the one thing I said, Hey, I'm doing a podcast. Don't come in here while while I'm working. Um, so then when, uh, when we were 27, 
I had just finished my second year of Discovery Channel. I was going into my third season. And just to give you a quick synopsis, you don't really make a lot of money in television your first or second season. Uh, after year two, you make a buttload of money in season three, season four, season five. And that's when you really start to create wealth in the television industry. So for me, it was exciting because I had gotten the two toughest part of television shows behind me. And I was going into year three, fat contract. And then all of a sudden, uh, the doctor tells us, hey, uh, your son has been diagnosed with this rare genetic disease called cystic fibrosis. I didn't know anything about it. I'll never forget where I was. It was kind of like everyone remembers where they were on 9-11. Uh, I remember exactly where I was. And I was in my hometown, pulled over on the side of the road, and I just bawled my eyes out. Didn't even know why I was crying. I was just crying because I was scared because I didn't know what the heck that meant. And I remember asking him, like, well, am I going to be able to coach my son's baseball team and this and that? Because, you know, you have all these visions. And I had to walk away from my Discovery Channel show uh, to where that year, to just, you know, just to throw the numbers out there, I would have probably made close to about 750 grand. And I ended up taking a job for $40,000 a year so that I could be at home with my wife, who was basically in fetal position, depressed out of her mind. I think she went out of the house two times in nine months. Um, it was just the worst time of our life uh, because we didn't know. And the crazy thing now is when you fast forward, all of the stuff that we worried about didn't happen. Mm. So we wasted so much time in our late 20s worrying about the what ifs. And here we are now, 11 years later, you know, you just heard it. He just walked in like, dude, he's the fastest one on the soccer team. He's unbelievable. He's never been hospitalized. He's, he's just like a miracle that we've walked out, that we've saw to like all the stuff that the doctors and, and believe me, I honor doctors. We have some unbelievable ones, but all the stuff that quote, they said was going to happen hasn't happened and didn't happen. And I just think of all the times that we wasted from stress, anxiety, depression, that if my 41 year old self can go back to my 39 or I'm sorry, my, my 29 year old self and tell them, hey, this is what your life looks like, I would have gained so much time back and not, you know, been submissive to the depression at the time, you know? Wow. That, that's, such, that's such a good, I think, lesson for all of us is we, we can face, when we face adversity, we spend so much time focusing, I love what you said, we spend so much time focusing on the what ifs as opposed to focusing on the what is. Yep. And, and you've lost years. Well, many of us have done that, right? Um, so, so you have the diagnosis and you start to dig in and you become passionate about serving in that community. Um, I know you started doing a lot of auctioneering to help raise money for Cystic Fibrosis Found Foundation. Um, and then Samantha's born, but before she's even born, you get some news about her, right? Yeah. So the challenging thing with cystic fibrosis is it's a genetic disease, which means I carry a gene and my wife carries a gene. So every time we have a baby, there's a 25% chance that we will both pass on a good gene, which is like our oldest son, and they're not even a carrier or anything. There's a 50% chance that I'll pass on a bad gene and she'll pass on a good gene, or she'll pass on a good gene and I'll pass on a bad gene, or vice versa. And a 50% chance there'll be a carrier like me and my wife, which basically means nothing. And then there's the 25% chance that I will pass on the bad gene, Terry will pass on the bad gene, which will result in the disease. So, we knew that going into 
having another kid, which explains why I have an 11 year old son and a five year old girl. Cause there's that huge six year gap. Right. Like, Oh, is that an oops baby? No, it wasn't an oops baby. It was a, I don't think we're going to have any more kids, but it was always our desire to have three. And I'll never forget. It was in 2013. Mason was five or six. And my wife said, I'm not done. I have more love to give. And, uh, we went for it. A lot of people ask us, why didn't you do in vitro or something like that? For us, that wasn't really an option because we didn't like the idea of, you know, throwing away, you know, quote, infected eggs or anything like that. So we, uh, we naturally went for it. Never in a million years did we think that was going to happen to us again. Because again, we are a family of faith. And, and this is maybe a deeper conversation and I preach about it all the time, but what happens when you move in faith you trust God for another quote, healthy baby. And then you get the same diagnosis as the other one. And for us, finding out the second time was more difficult than finding out with Mason, because this time we knew what we were doing, never thought in a million years it was going to happen. And uh, I got to be honest, finding out the second time was harder than the first time. Mm. And, uh, it was a cha- it's a challenge to our faith at that point, right? It isn't just about this happened once and it could have happened to anybody. But now it's like, you know, we trusted God. We trusted you to not let this happen again. And it did. So it can be really challenging to your faith, right? A hundred percent. And I mean, and this is a much deeper conversation. I can go there if you want me to. But what a lot of people say, and most of them, uh, unfortunately, maybe family members, uh, pastors, maybe believers of the same thing you think, they say things like, well, God knew what he was doing when he allowed this to happen or, Hey, his ways aren't our ways. And you know, this was all part of God's plan. I don't believe that for one second, because for me, uh, I I consider myself a disciple of Jesus. And I, you know, for those of you who are listening that aren't believers, sorry to preach to you, but I'll just be quick. Um, Uh, you know, I never saw that language in the life of Jesus. I always saw him face adversities and crush the works of the devil. So for me and my family, we don't believe that cystic fibrosis is allowed uh, or caused by God on our family. We believe it's a distraction from the devil. We believe that any disease is from the pit of hell. And so when that falls on us because we're not immune to life, uh, we face that thing head on, we fight it, and we overcome it because we believe that through the power of the, I'm just going to go real deep on you here, man. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we could crush that thing. And if you saw my uh, my daughter and my son today, yeah, they might have this diagnosis of cystic fibrosis, but they don't have the challenge and all of the uh, sentencing, if you will, that, that would come with it. And I attribute that both 100% to the Lord and 100% to science and doctors because I don't think God's intimidated by science. I don't think God's intimidated by doctors. In fact, I believe he co-labors with them because at the end of the day, he wants us healthy, not sick. And that's the type of path we choose to embrace for our kids. Well, I mean, he did create science after all, so I don't think he's opposed to it. Amen. Um, Well, and so this is what I wanted to talk to you about because I think so many people out there are challenged with, and I know we don't have a lot of time left in the show, but they're challenged with sickness or they're challenged with disease or they're challenged with the financial burden. They're challenged with this and that and the other. But really when it hits home with our kids and our personal life with with sickness and illness, and we can crawl in a hole. And we can play the poor, poor, pitiful me, uh, throw ourselves a pity party, or we can lean in full speed and go, you know what? 
we got this. It is what it is. And we're going to figure out how the what what purpose this is going to serve uh, for the for our children's lives and for those those that they're going to impact positively. And when I saw Samantha, and for those out there who haven't done this yet, I want you to Google Ellen Baby Bottle Flip because she was on the Ellen Show with Matt in 2017. She is the Baby Bottle Flip uh, expert, right? And then you see the kind of light that she has. And when you post about her on social media, and you see the light that she is, and uh, it, you, you look at that and go, that girl's going to, she's going to, she's going to be president, right? She, she's got that light about her. So speak to the audience out there when they're saying that you know, they've got either a child or themselves and they feel like, oh, they're limited by fill in the blank. It's not their identity. Like talk, talk about how you and Terry have approached that with Samantha and, and with Mason and with Braden as well, but especially the younger two. That's a great question. And I, there's so many people that have been devastated by their circumstances. And a lot of times we let our circumstances speak louder than truth when it's truth that sets us free, not our circumstances. And people always ask me, Matt, why do you talk about the Bible so much? And, you know, the truth is because it works. Uh, I'm all about results. I'm not one of those people out there that just walk around with this blind faith, hoping stuff works out. I've actually had conversations with the Lord. And it's like, if you're real, show me. Because I don't want to be an idiot walking around believing something that's not true. I need results. So to answer your question, we're not immune to life. I always think about the story in the Bible of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For those of you who don't know it, three guys of faith who were thrown into a fiery furnace. And uh, because they had integrity, they didn't bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, they said, yeah, throw us in the fire and our Lord's going to save us through it. Well, The funny part about that story is I think about like, you know, God's God, he can do anything. He could have put the fire out. He could have, uh, I mean, made the fire disappear, whatever, but, but he didn't put the fire out. Instead, it says that there was a fourth man standing in the fire with him. And of course, we believe that fourth man was the son of God, Jesus. And the way I attribute that to my situation is, yeah, technically my kids still have this diagnosis of cystic fibrosis or this fire, if you will, that yeah, I would love for them to walk into the doctor and they say, hey, you don't have that anymore. But the truth is, the fire's not the issue. God didn't put out the fire. He stood with them and walked through the fire with them. And the funny thing is, he never addressed the fire because the fire's never the issue. He's Lord over it. So for us, cystic fibrosis is an issue. Uh, If you're battling cancer, cancer's not your issue. If you've been battling migraines for 15 years, migraine's not the issue because he's Lord over it. And he never promises us you know, sunshine and roses every day. In fact, he does says you will have trials, but take peace because, and take confidence because I've overcome the world. So yeah, I still go through the same challenges as everyone else. And I promise you, I do not have my ducks in a row. Uh, I put my pants on one leg at a time like you do. And I still eat, drink and all that stuff in between. Like I have to live life. I have to go through life, but I don't let my circumstances speak louder than truth. And it's sad when Sam was born, we found out in utero. With Mason, we didn't find out until after he was born. Well, Sam, we found out when she was still in utero. And the first thing the doctor said to us was, unfortunately, your baby girl is going to be having cystic fibrosis just like your son. Do you want to terminate the pregnancy? And my wife and I just cried because we believe that, and we tell our doctors this all the time, Don't look at our kids like you're treating a disease. Look at our kids like you're raising a God-given destiny. Mm. And for us, 
I don't want to kill whatever God has planned. I don't want to put to death the destiny that he planted inside of it. Sure, we have this stigma or this diagnosis of cystic fibrosis, but that's not the issue because he's Lord over it. Well, now fast forward to Sam. She's almost six years old. Over 200 million people have seen her through this video. She has an unbelievable story. And of course, like any other father with a daughter out there, I cannot imagine my life without her. Yes, we have to do breathing treatments. Yes, there are parts that get tough in life. But at the same time, her destiny outshines any other challenge that we have to go through. And the same thing is for anybody else out there. So that's fantastic. Regardless of what you're going through, I mean, there's a bigger purpose at play here, and it's your destiny, and God is for you, not against you. Oh, wow. That's a great, great place to stop, buddy. So um, as we close up shop, and thank you for sharing your story with us today. It's fantastic. I'm motivated. I'm ready to go run through another wall, buddy. Um, it, t- tell people where they can go uh, to help support maybe some of the foundation work you're doing with cystic fibrosis. Where, where's a good place to point people? I would ask everybody to follow me on social media at Matt Rogers USA. That's M-A-T-T-R-O-G-E-R-S USA. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And we post about our fundraisers every year. Our next big one's coming up on uh, April 4th, 2020, right here in Leapers Fork, Tennessee, at the Leapers Fork Whiskey Distillery. And it's going to be awesome. I think we're going to have Motley Crue there. It's going to be nice. Nice. (laughs) Well, man, I really uh, appreciate your story. I appreciate your vulnerability. I appreciate you sharing your realness with the audience. I know it connected with somebody out there specifically. It was meant for that today, if nothing else. I appreciate the time. Uh, and, And thanks for being a guest on the podcast today. Yes. And if I can say one more thing, because I feel like it needs to see, to hear this is, you know, uh, I never let my circumstances determine how I'm doing. Uh, I always live from purpose and destiny, and it's your decisions, not your conditions, that determine your destiny. That's something that I live by every day. So I wanted to share that before you let me go. Well, and just so you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we had Munoz on, and, and, I, and I said, what's the one key takeaway? And he said, excellence is a choice your decisions every day. You can choose to be excellent or you can choose to be lazy. You can choose destiny or you can choose the couch, right? It's perfectly in alignment with that. So, man, that's a great way to end. Thank you, brother. We really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Love you. Thanks for having me. You bet. Have a great day. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.